You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hi, everyone. A quick note before I begin. This is episode number 23 of Fireside Canada. That's episode 10 of season 2, and it's the season finale. For the most part, it's been a great season, and I want to thank everyone for listening, for leaving positive reviews, for sharing the show with others, and for your emails. Podcasting is a strange undertaking. You do a lot of work to research, write, and record. You put it out into the world and just see what happens. Often, it can feel like you're talking into a void, so it means a lot when a listener lets me know that they're out there and that they enjoyed the episode. I also want to say a big thank you to the few people who have donated to the show. As promised, the donations were used solely to help Fireside Canada grow. And grow it has. When I finished Season 1, the show had just over 1,000 downloads. Today, at the end of Season 2, that number is well over 100 times that. I'm proud to say that Fireside Canada reached number one on Apple Podcasts and Amazon in the history category. And I believe it even cracked the top 50 of all podcasts in Canada. It was noted by Reader's Digest as one of the best Canadian history podcasts you should be listening to and was one of eight shows that made the list of Apple Canada's editor's picks for 2021. I'm humbled to see Fireside Canada listed alongside podcasts like Canada Land's The White Saviors, CBC's Telling Our Twisted Histories, and Pushkin Industries' A Slight Change of Plans. I hope that my folklore ramblings, as I call them, have helped more people learn about and enjoy the unique history and culture of this country. The show will now go dark as I consider the potential for Season 3. So, for now, thanks again so much for listening, and on with the show. In Fredericton, New Brunswick, there's a small community museum located inside a heritage building that once served as the officers' quarters within the city's military compound. Inside, you'll find antiques, art, and artifacts, from First Nations tools to antique tea sets to examples of Acadian craftsmanship. But for all of the fun and fascinating objects on display, few can rival the museum's most popular exhibit, a giant frog enclosed in a glass case. It was caught in a nearby lake, they tell you. The man who found it would often confer with it for hours by the water. Soon, he began to feed it, and both the frog and its story grew and grew until they both became larger than life, and larger than reason. So what is the story behind this strange-looking creature, and what can it tell us about Canadian history, culture, and the art of storytelling? Tonight, we'll find out. You're listening to Fireside Canada. My podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. This is the final episode of Season 2. And just like in Season 1, I thought it would be fun to share another story on the lighter side of things. Tonight, we're exploring another tall tale, this time from the city of Fredericton, New Brunswick. On the surface, it's a fun and entertaining story about a ridiculously massive bullfrog. 
As a narrative, it's an outstanding example of a whopper of a legend that has enjoyed an exceptionally long lifespan, due mostly to the fact that there is actual physical evidence that supports it. And in sharing the story, it urges us to consider the difference between fact and truth. One part 19th century advertising, one part folklore, the story has warmed hearts and captivated imaginations for generations. It has been the topic of skeptical inquiry and schoolyard arguments. It has its true believers and its detractors. Some call it fact, some call it fiction, but almost everyone will agree that it's entertaining. This is the tall tale of the Coleman Frog. I've said in the past that Canadian folklore is somewhat overlooked. I've heard from so many listeners who acknowledge that they've never heard of most of the stories I've shared in this podcast. And unlike the stories of Europe, Asia, and even America, Canadian folklore is somewhat obscure and often neglected. These stories are seldom shared, seldom taught. And if they are, they're often pale imitations of what they used to be, watered down for brevity, levity, and polite company, until the purpose and meaning behind the story is eventually forgotten. But the same can't be said about a different kind of story, known as the tall tale. We've all heard a tall tale or two at some time in our lives often shared by a colorful relative or family friend, a boisterous uncle perhaps, or an old fishing buddy, they are known as tall tales because they stretch the truth and the limits of their believability as far as they possibly can. The better the storyteller, the taller the tale, limited only by what their talent and their imaginations will allow. They are part truth, part fiction, and wholly good-natured, featuring feats of strength exploits of heroes, and incredible exaggerations, which are always best when told orally, within the moment, and with conviction, as if the events truly transpired. Tall tales are an important part of the Canadian cultural landscape, perfect for the campfire, the cabin, and the pub. Often set in the wilderness of our own backyard, they tell of amazing encounters with remarkable creatures and amazing natural forces. In the prairies, you'll hear stories of flatland jackalopes, grasshoppers, and snowfall so high that cars would drive over top of telephone poles. In the hills and woodlands, you'll hear stories of the agropelter, the sidehill gouger, and the massive fish that got away. But in the city of Fredericton, New Brunswick, there is one tall tale that rises above the rest and has withstood the test of time for over 120 years. The reason is because it's one of those rare tall tales that has physical proof, such as it is, that you can see with your own eyes and judge for yourself. It comes in the form of a giant taxidermied frog that has sat in a glass case in a local museum for the better part of a century. This is its story. Part 1. Big Frog, Tall Tale some of the best friendships are built on two things, mutual respect and a bottle of whiskey. The friendship in this story is no exception, though the two souls involved certainly were exceptional. You see, this is a story about a man and his frog, and the bond between them that would last over a decade.
The unlikely relationship began in the summer of 1885, when a man named Fred Coleman went fishing on Killarney Lake, roughly seven kilometers north of downtown Fredericton, New Brunswick. Now, as far as Canadian lakes go, Killarney was unremarkable. At just under 11 hectares, or 26 acres, it's little bigger than a pond, a somewhat shallow pool of steel-blue water at an overgrown rocky shore, hidden within a great expanse of scruffy, second-growth trees. It's home to the usual suspects, brook trout, smallmouth bass, suckerfish, a few eels, and, of course, bullfrogs. Day and night, this croaking chorus would rise up from the waterline, and you'd be grateful to hear it, knowing that they were partly to thank for keeping the swarms of mosquitoes and black flies from picking your bones clean. Though on that cool summer's day, Fred couldn't help but think that they could be doing a better job as he sat in his canoe and slapped away the umpteenth mosquito that landed on his neck. At the very least, he thought, the frogs could do more to thin out the insect population so the fish would be more eager to chase his bait. He had been here all morning and hadn't gotten a single bite. Giving a heavy sigh, Fred put down his fishing pole and pulled a sandwich from the tackle box. At least someone will be eating out here, Fred said to no one in particular. He slapped his neck again. Other than the mosquitoes, I mean. Clutching the sandwich between thumb and forefinger, he began to eat his lunch, his bushy mustache undulating below his wide, flat nose as he gazed out over the lake. A moment later, he heard a heavy thud and turned to find a large bullfrog sitting in the bow of his canoe. Killarney Lake was known for its oddly large bullfrogs, but this was certainly king or queen of them all. The frog was a pale olive green with deep brown speckles and a wide, tan stomach. Fred imagined it easily weighed six or seven pounds. The sun glinted off its broad back as it stared at Fred and his sandwich. Well, hello there, Fred said, doffing his straw hat to the brave Batrachian. Nice day for a picnic on the water. The frog shuffled to the side and eyed him expectantly. I hope you're having better luck than me, Fred continued, gesturing to his empty bucket. The frog looked unimpressed. Guess not, Fred said. He took another bite. Well, keep at it, he said. He pointed his half-eaten sandwich at the creature and squinted. You know what they say, every frog will have his day. Fred chuckled at his own joke. The frog replied by inflating its vocal sac to twice the size of its head and letting out one long, guttural croak. I know exactly what you mean, Fred said. Well, I'm always happy to share. He pulled a slice of cheddar from his sandwich and offered it to the frog. Its eyes tracked the cheese warily. Then its tongue shot out, snatched the cheese from his fingers, and drew it into its wide mouth in one sudden, smooth action. It paused a moment, tasting this new culinary delight, before its bulbous eyes retracted into its head and popped out again. The frog had swallowed the cheese whole and smacked its lips, satisfied. Fred gave a surprised laugh as he took another bite, then offered the remains, an L-shaped crust, a bit of lettuce and cheese, to his new amphibian fishing buddy. Once more, the frog's tongue flew forward, and before Fred could even blink, snapped back into its mouth, sandwich in tow. Well, I'll be, Fred exclaimed. You're something else. 
Fred drew a small flask from his vest and twisted open the silver dome cap. He raised it in the air and grinned. Cheers, he said, and took a sip of whiskey. The frog's throat quivered. Want some? Fred asked, incredulous. He leaned forward and his shadow fell over the frog, his head blocking out the noonday sun, and he was surprised when the frog didn't move. He was certain that the creature would have been spooked and jumped back into the water, but it just sat there, staring with a slight frown on its face. Clutching the flask tightly, Fred's hand inched closer and closer toward the frog, so close now that he was sure he could drop the flask and just grab the frog in one swift movement. At least he wouldn't come home empty-handed. It was late in the day, and soon it would be time to head home. Fish was no longer on the menu, but a supper of frog legs, especially the meaty legs of this hefty titan, would certainly be good eating. Fred's only half-serious contemplation was cut short and replaced by amazement when the frog's mouth opened, wider than Fred thought possible, in anticipation of a belly full of whiskey. Hesitating for only a moment, Fred tipped the flask and poured a few good glugs down the frog's green gullet. The creature snapped its mouth closed and its eyes once again sank into its skull as it swallowed. Fred looked at the frog. The frog looked at Fred, then gave one large, loud, belching croak and leapt overboard. Fred leaned over the side of the canoe and watched it disappear beneath the rippling water. Yes, he said, you are truly something else. The following week, Fred was back at the lake, in his canoe, fishing pole in hand, but less interested in catching fish than catching up with his new amphibian friend. He didn't have to wait long. To his delight, he soon spotted two beady eyes poke out from the water and cruise toward him. With a large splash, the frog was once again in the bow of Fred's canoe, and the two again shared a meal. Fred watching in amazement as the frog grumphed down all manner of food, from cheese and biscuits to corn cake and buttermilk, with a little nip of whiskey for good measure. After the frog had its fill, it gave a happy croak and leapt back into the water. And that's how things would go for the rest of the summer, and then the entire year after that, and the year after that, and so on and so on. For five years, excluding the winters when the frog would sleep in the muck at the bottom of the frozen lake. Fred would eventually forego the canoe entirely and simply walk to the landing each week and then twice a week to share a meal with his friend. At first, it was simple. A bite of sandwich here, a few spoonfuls of porridge there, some buttermilk, some whey, and always, of course, a toast of whiskey. But as the frog grew and grew, what was a few scraps became an entire meal. Fred would bring leftovers from the night before, sizable dollops of baked beans, slices of hot apple pie and fresh baked bread, oven-warm muffins, freshly churned buttermilk, and a liberal amount of whiskey or rum. By the autumn of the fifth year, the frog had nearly doubled in size. Now, let me shift for a moment and tell you about Fred. He was born in the city of St. John, New Brunswick in 1847 and came to Fredericton when he was 25, around 1872. Some said he served at the port as a U.S. consular agent. Others said he had worked for many years for a local lumber company. 
Whatever his past, in 1881, everyone agreed that he had found his true calling when he became the proprietor of the famous Barker House Hotel, which once stood on the corner of Queen and Regent Street in downtown Fredericton, on the bend of the St. John River. It was a popular halfway point for avid sportsmen on their way to New Brunswick's famous hunting and fishing grounds. Fred's success at the Barker House inspired him to lease some land and build a home and hotel out by Killarney Lake as well. Fred was, according to a popular magazine at the time, a man of imposing appearance and unique personality. And those traits allowed him to offer exceptional hospitality to his guests, inviting the more affluent of his patrons to join him on Killarney Lake. Five years after his first encounter with the giant frog, Fred was standing on the lakeshore laying out a hearty lunch for his guests, which included a United States governor, a Boston liquor baron, a local dry goods and millinery merchant, and a famous actor, all recently returned from an excursion to the fishing grounds of the Miramichi. The men were loudly chatting away, sharing tall tales of enormous fish that slipped the line and strange natural occurrences they had read about or experienced when their conversation was overwhelmed by a deep, booming sound coming from the center of the lake. The men fell quiet, as did the chorus of frogs hidden in the reeds nearby. The governor paused midway through lighting his pipe, clutching a burning match in spellbound silence before gasping and flicking the match into the water when the descending flame reached his fingers. The sound came again, and two of the men shot to their feet. Fred raised and lowered his hands in a calming gesture and explained that they had nothing to fear. The monstrous sound that shattered their midday retreat was simply the call of a sizable and friendly frog. Within moments, the party were all on their feet, following Fred as he made his way to the boat landing, an assortment of victuals cradled in his arms. A large shadow appeared in the lake and moved at a striking speed toward the men. A moment later, an enormous frog, as big as a terrier, rose up from the water and sprang onto the landing. The others were astounded as Fred gently stroked the frog under the chin and then fed it an assortment of foods, including French rolls, pumpkin pie, and cake. The experience left a profound impression on Fred's audience, especially the actor who, in his travels, had heard an intriguing story that suggested a very specific diet could help the frog grow even larger. He shared that information with Fred, and in the spring, Fred purchased a bucket, shovel, and scale, and multiple sacks of cornmeal, and got to work. Cue the montage. Every Wednesday and Sunday, Fred would religiously go to the water with a bucket of cornmeal slurry in one hand and a shovel in the other. He would call for the frog, first with his voice, later with a gunshot, and later still with three blows from a horn. The frog would immediately appear, and Fred would shovel a bucketful of his mysterious cornmeal mixture into its waiting mouth. Of course, the odd slice of pie, bottle of whiskey, and even a cigar or two were still often shared between friends. The scientific diet and the friendship behind it caused the frog to grow even further. 
Rumors of a most remarkable frog began circulating, and soon Fred had an audience of curious locals who came to the lakeshore to watch the frog, now as tame and friendly as a puppy, convene for an hour with his friend, then hop onto the scales for its seasonal weigh-in. 12 pounds, 24 pounds, 36 pounds. Finally, after years of routine visitations, it tipped the scale at a whopping 42 pounds. With its massive hind legs outstretched, the giant frog stood 5 feet 4 inches tall. And with its impressive growth came impressive abilities. Stories spread of how the mammoth frog raced tomcats and won. How one summer's day, a boat full of people got stranded on the lake, but were saved by the Herculean efforts of Coleman's frog, who, with enormous strength, towed them back to shore. There were even stories of the frog's beautiful, baritone singing voice, how it could croak out the top tunes of the day. Think a froggy version of A Hot Town in the Old Town Tonight. Killarney Lake became something of a tourist attraction, and Coleman's frog became a continental sensation. Photos were taken and distributed, postcards were sent, and plans were made to showcase the creature at the New England Sportsman's Exhibition in Boston. Unfortunately, it was early March and the lake was still frozen, the frog in deep hibernation. Fred and his friends cut a hole in the ice, then fired pistols and sounded horns until nightfall, but the frog failed to surface. Fred was saddened by the lost opportunity, but not dejected. There would be other chances. After all, this was the largest frog on record in the history of the world. Surely its debut deserved more than a mere sportsman's exhibition. It really deserved a place on the world stage, and the perfect opportunity was fast approaching. The 1900 Paris Exposition was just around the corner. It would be a monumental event that would attract 48 million visitors and display some of the world's greatest modern achievements. The first ever trolleybus, moving sidewalks, diesel engines, electric cars, talking films, and the tallest Ferris wheel in the world at the time. Certainly, this moment of retrospective celebration and forward-looking optimism would be the perfect opportunity for Coleman's frog to shine. To showcase this cat-racing, boat-towing, cornmeal-devouring, cigar-smoking, whiskey-swilling frog there in the City of Lights would truly be an inspiration at the dawn of the 20th century. As part of the exposition, the message would be one of positivity. That, with the right knowledge and perseverance, you can achieve the impossible. Record sounds using magnetism. Transport hundreds through the magic of harnessed electricity. And, in this case, feed a seven-pound bullfrog until it grows to the size of a border collie. Truly an icon of the limitless potential of the modern era. Alas, it was not to be. One brisk spring morning, a group of unsavory ne'er-do-wells made their way to Killarney Lake and, in an unthinking act of greed and selfishness, lit the fuse on a stick of dynamite and tossed it into the water. It's called blast fishing, a highly destructive and irresponsible method of fishing that uses explosives to stun and kill fish for easy collection, but at the extreme risk of harming themselves innocent bystanders, and other creatures in the water. 
On this day, its victims included an untold number of fish and, sadly, a 42-pound frog. When Fred arrived later that day, he found it floating belly up near the landing. It was too beautiful for this world. Devastated, Fred knelt on the landing, reached out into the water, and cradled his friend's body in his arms. Then, with tears in his eyes, unable to part with the animal that had so enriched his life for years, he brought the frog home, then to a taxidermist in Maine, known for his ability to preserve the lifelike appearance of his subjects. The frog was thus immortalized and displayed in a glass box in the lobby of the Barker House Hotel, an eye-popping exhibition for curious travelers and a testament to an unbreakable bond between a man and a frog. There, it would keep Fred company for the rest of his life and then remain a fixture at the Barker House Hotel until Fred's son retired from the business in 1949. The years since Fred's passing were rough on the frog, marred occasionally by abuse and neglect. And after leaving the hotel, the frog bounced around for a decade, from attic to storeroom to garage, until it was finally donated by a family member to a local museum. And there it sits to this day, at the Fredericton Region Museum, still one of the most popular attractions. It's been over a century since Fred first shared his story with the world, and the Coleman Frog still delights both locals and tourists alike, as a beloved relic from another time, when tales were taller, frogs were bigger, and friendships could be larger than life. Part 2. The Long and Short of It So let's address the elephant, or rather, the frog, in the room. The biggest frog officially on record is the Bielzebufo Ampinga, otherwise known as the Devil Frog, which inhabited the island of Madagascar between 65 and 70 million years ago. These monstrous amphibians are estimated to have grown up to 16 inches long and weigh up to 10 pounds. The largest living frog is known as the Goliath frog. Found in the mountain streams of Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea, they're a step down from the devil frog, able to grow up to 13 inches in length and weigh just over 7 pounds. These beastly batrachians are impressive, unless you're comparing them to the legendary Coleman frog, which, if the story is to be believed, was four to six times larger. Now, I'm no expert, but I imagine it's a bit of a stretch to suggest that a regular old American bullfrog could physically achieve such an impressive weight, let alone consume copious amounts of cornmeal, buttermilk, and alcohol. But such is the nature of tall tales. They stretch the truth as far as they can, and challenge your suspension of disbelief all in an effort to entertain. And entertain it has. The story of Coleman's frog was rather popular at the end of the 19th century, spurned on by the actions of a fledgling tourism initiative that published a few postcards featuring photos of Fred Coleman and his web-footed friend. And the stunt seems to have worked. A note from the October 7, 1899 edition of Forest and Stream magazine notes that people came from far and near to catch a glimpse of the giant frog that was on display in the lobby of the Barker House Hotel. Having such a strange story and physical evidence to go with it proved especially useful for standing out in the crowd, 
The magazine notes, quote, A bewildered sportsman who arrived on a late train the other evening was set upon by half a dozen stalwart coachmen who shouted at him the names of the various houses they represented. Gentlemen, said the stranger blandly, I don't know one hotel from another. Take me to the man that has the big frog. End quote. The frog gained even more international fame when it was featured in Robert L. Ripley's famous Believe It or Not cartoon. More recently, it was listed in an Air Canada newspaper ad from 1970, which encouraged jet-setting Ontarians to fly to the eastern provinces and discover what they deemed to be the undiscovered country. The two-page spread lists the Coleman Frog as a must-see attraction, alongside the Cabot Trail, the Bay of Fundy, and PEI's famous Green Gables Heritage Place. Today, people still come to see the Coleman Frog and marvel at its size and its story. It doesn't look as lifelike as it once did. It's heavily shellacked, most of the spots are gone, and it's been refinished in a paint that's just a little too green. Apparently, some time after Fred's death, the display case was accidentally smashed or removed, and the frog was used, for a time, as an ashtray. This abuse no doubt contributed to its somewhat rough appearance, but it's still a beloved part of the community. I asked around on Reddit, in the Fredericton and New Brunswick subreddits, to see if the legend is still going strong. And for the most part, it is. While many New Brunswickers had never heard of it, many others had fond memories of visiting the museum as a child and learning all about it through the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. They told me of schoolyard arguments and dinner table debates over whether the frog was real, of how the legend would come up every so often throughout their childhood, with the storyteller doing their best to embellish as much as possible before they were called out on their fiction. One person remembered how the considerable size and gaze of the giant Coleman frog was so intimidating that they avoided the treacherous depths of Killarney Lake for the entire summer that year. And you know, maybe they had good reason to be scared. For, you see, there's another detail of at least some of the stories that's not often talked about today. It has to do with what exactly the frog was eating that made it so large. And here's a hint it wasn't just June Bug's whiskey and cornmeal. And fair warning, it's kind of gross. Remember the actor I mentioned in the story, the one who suggested that Fred administer a very specific, highly scientific diet that would make the frog grow even larger? Well, according to a few versions of the legend from 1899, that actor was Joseph Jefferson. Now, that name doesn't mean much to people today, but at the time, Jefferson was one of the most famous 19th century American comedians, known for his portrayal as Rip Van Winkle, a role he would play for decades in plays and silent films. The story goes that, in his travels, Jefferson had come across an article in a French periodical that described how excavators had uncovered an ancient stone vault hidden beneath the city of Paris, France. Inside, there lived an enormous frog that had grown well beyond what the laws of nature normally allow. The floor was covered in countless frog skins of varying sizes, and the crew couldn't figure out how this frog could have grown so big in such an isolated location. Until they discovered that the back of the vault shared a wall with a sewer that led directly from an abattoir. That's a slaughterhouse and processing plant. 
They soon concluded that the frog had subsisted upon the blood and viscera that came from the cows that were slaughtered above. Thus, Jefferson's advice to Fred was simple. Feed the frog blood and watch it grow. According to this version of the story, Fred's feed bucket contained one part cornmeal and one part blood. Yich. Understandably, this detail wasn't included in many future retellings, though I suspect it was hinted at in a few later articles that refer to Fred's feed as his, quote, mysterious cornmeal mixture, end quote. We can certainly understand why this was omitted. It suddenly makes the story a lot weirder, and raises some uncomfortable questions, like where did Fred get all the blood? And did the frog develop a taste for it? Many of the stories talk about pie, bread, french rolls, and cornmeal. The closest we get to an animal is buttermilk, and we certainly never hear about any meat being given to the frog beyond a few plump june bugs and a firefly or two. Sure, frogs are actually carnivores, and some of the largest species consume mice and even birds, but imagining that somewhere within a small Canadian lake there once lurked a 40-pound frog with a taste for the blood of mammals is a little scary, and maybe not appropriate for an elementary school field trip. But the frog exists, and minus the slaughtered cattle and blood consumption, it's a fun story worth sharing and considering. And, as in all of those schoolyard arguments and dinner debates, we are led to a question that has been pondered for more than a century. Is it factual? Well, the museum's official answer is the same any good storyteller would give after reciting a tall tale. And it's this. It's up to the listener, and in this case, the viewer of the exhibit, to decide. You will not, and in my opinion, should not, receive a more definitive answer. And that's because it's the wrong question. One of the earliest books on the subject of Canadian folklore was written by William Parker Greenow and published in 1897. Titled Canadian Folklife and Folklore, the book gives us an in-depth look at the social life, customs, and stories of what he called the Canada of Old, meaning the region of Lower Canada, now the province of Quebec, in the mid-1800s. One of my favorite sections is the part titled Amusements, Contes and Raconteurs, where the author heaps praise upon a man who was a friend, experienced woodsman, and master storyteller. Greenow was captivated by this man's ability to mix the possible with the absurd, and noted that, though he considered him to be, quote, as truthful a Canadian as I ever knew, end quote, he, like every good Canadian storyteller, had a tendency to exaggerate in every tale he told. He wrote, quote, I do not look on it as deliberate falsification, but only as coming from the habitual inclination of a narrator to make the most he can out of his story, end quote. The author explains how a good evening of storytelling was kicked off by someone sharing an improbable tale about an epic catch or an impossible shot. That story would inspire someone else to share another tale, which would inspire another, and so on getting increasingly unlikely as they one-upped each other. After recording one particularly colorful story about a hunter who pulled out a bear's non-existent tail, the author notes, quote, The fact that a bear has no tail of which a person could take hold does not affect the truth of this story, end quote. 
The rules then are the same as the rules now for any really good tall tale. The author points out that in these storytelling sessions, no one would ever question a word of what was shared. It would be impolite. They're not told as facts. They're told as obvious embellished entertainment, yarns to be spun to while away the hours of a pleasant Sunday evening. At the end of a tall tale, the other storytellers would nod in assent and say things like C'était bien fait, that was well done, or C'est bien vrai, that is quite true, before continuing with a story of their own. Forget about the facts. Whether or not it has any truth to it, that's what makes a good story. That's what really matters. This perspective has led me to develop my own personal philosophy as a storyteller. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. So I could tell you that the timeline of the Coleman Frog is all over the place, with the frog finally being stuffed in 1885, 1887, and 1889. I could share that a common alternate tale tells how Fred Coleman purchased a stuffed frog from a traveling salesman, who used the prop to sell a patent remedy guaranteed to, quote, get rid of the frog in your throat, end quote. I could tell you that a former president of the York Sunbury Historical Society declared it to be, quote, a patent fake, end quote, that should have been tossed in the trash years ago. I could tell you how a renowned skeptic and researcher named Joe Nickel infiltrated the museum's archives and found evidence that the Coleman Frog is, in fact, quote, an amusing example of a colossal fake and deception, end quote. But that's just one side of the story. You also need to know that according to Coleman's son, Fred had, at one point, an actual pet frog, likely rather large and likely caught at Killarney Lake. According to the book Tall Tales and True Tales from Down East by Stuart Truman, back in 1959, when the Historical Society learned that the famous Coleman Frog was being kept in a garage in Lincoln by Coleman's widow, Dr. Donald J. McLeod was dispatched by the museum to ask for her permission to put it on display. McLeod recalled that day. He said, quote, She was a very gracious lady. She believed the original story implicitly. At first, she demurred about letting the society put the frog on display, because she was afraid people wouldn't believe it was real and would only ridicule it. She pointed out that her husband believed completely in the authenticity of the frog because he had told her so. Sometime later, she consented, on the stipulation we were to believe too and not present the frog in such a way as to belittle it in the minds of others. We made that promise. End quote. It's often said that the Fredericton Region Museum, the guardians of the frog, refused to send it in for DNA testing. Some authors have pointed to this fact as evidence that they're being disingenuous, that they're hiding something, or afraid to admit the truth. But I think they're missing the point. Sending the Coleman frog to a third party for a scientific study is like sending an expedition to the North Pole in search of Santa Claus. Certainly we can do it, but it's much more fun to simply listen to the story and believe it in the moment. If you live nearby, I encourage you to hop on down to the Fredericton Region Museum and check it out for yourself. This year, 2022, marks Fred Coleman's 175th birthday, 
making it the perfect year to get acquainted with the monster of a frog and whopper of a legend. Is the story true? Well, to really find out, just ask any school-age kid in Fredericton. They'll tell you the truth. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Joseph Fish. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca. Have you ever wanted to learn about the man who tried to jump the St. Lawrence in a rocket car? The margarine bootleggers of Newfoundland? or the time the royal family had a barbecue with a regular Manitoba family in 1970? I explore all those stories and more on my podcast, Canadian History X. Over the course of over 500 episodes, I've delved into the good, the bad, and the weird of Canadian history. From the days when the Vikings landed and met the indigenous to the Shawinigan handshake, I try and cover it all. What about politics? Well, on my podcast, From John to Justin, I look at our prime ministers, premiers, elections, opposition leaders, and governors general and show how all of this shaped Canada to what it is today. More interested in hockey? Then I have Pucks and Cups, my podcast about the early years of hockey in Canada. On Canada's Great War, I delve into the First World War and how it completely changed Canada forever, beginning in 1914 and running until 1918. And lastly, if you want to learn about trains, then check out Coast to Coast, my look at the construction of Canada's transcontinental railway. All my podcasts are on all podcast platforms, ready to scratch whatever Canadian history itch you may have.